Well, I'm Jamie Duggett, the pastoral intern here. If you'll turn your Bibles with me to Psalm 4. So the Psalms is the big book right in the middle, as I think Ryan's mentioned before, so that'll help you find it. We're continuing on our series going for, through the first few Psalms. Um, so Psalm 4, let's pay close attention to the reading of God's Word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abounds. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this scripture to us, that we would understand what you're trying to tell us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. When was the last time you got angry? There, there's one particular story that, that always makes come up in my mind. Uh, it was this time when I was driving my mother to get, catch the Megabus from Philly back to Pittsburgh, um, back when my parents didn't live in Philly and I did. Uh, it was, the, the traffic was rather heavy as it sometimes gets in Philly and we were worried about whether we were going to make the time to uh, drop her off to get on the bus. And so as, you know, I, my stress was mounting as I'm trying to navigate through, you know, Philly driving. I, D.C., we're not quite in the south, are we? But I think, think the driving gets worse if you head a little bit farther north, at least more at le north, at least more aggressive. So anyway, navigating through a slightly more aggressive Philly driving scene. And we started to draw near to the place where I needed to drop off my mother, and I still had about five minutes left. And I was relieved, and I was ready to go ready to drop my mother off. But then as I pulled up to stop, the bus started to pull away. By the way, if you, you know, Megabus, good prices, but if you do check, they do say you have to be there 15 minutes, or 15 minutes early. Um, so there, but, but from my perspective, the bus is leaving five minutes before it said, I just made it through all that traffic and there it goes, you know, leaving my mother behind. And I, felt so angry. I got out of the car, had a brief argument with the attendant who was standing there, who like, I don't know what was gonna, I thought was gonna happen if I won that argument. And then I started running after the bus, yelling. <laughs> the prob driver probably couldn't even hear me. Um, anger can make us speak and act foolishly. 
as I, as I realized once I came back to my right senses. In fact, strong emotions in general can make us speak and act foolishly. Our psalm today focuses especially on our hearts, our emotions. Uh, Ryan said a few weeks ago that the psalms actually in general focus us a lot on our emotions and how we deal with them before God, and this psalm especially focuses on emotions, um, and especially anger. And so as we look at this psalm, I want us to see three points this morning. First of all, what to do with strong negative emotions. That's our first point. Secondly, we're going to see that God can give us inner joy. And third, we're going to look at how Jesus fulfills this psalm at the end. So we're going to see what to do with strong negative emotions. We're going to see that God can give us inner joy. And then we're going to see how Jesus fulfills this psalm. Before we jump right into our first point, though, I do want to set, spend some time looking at the first verse and setting the context for this psalm. You know, I had a discussion with um, a couple of you this week over what is a lament. Ryan used that term and talked about that last week. And we could say broadly that a lament is a psalm where the psalmist cr- cries out to God in the middle of a trial. Um, cries out to God in the middle of a trial. But um, the when we use a genre label like that, it's not a straitjacket. There are many different kinds of laments in the Psalter. Uh, one thing that often happens in a lament, for instance, is an expression of confidence in God. Usually the psalmist doesn't just cry out, he also expresses confidence. Um, but our psalm is a little unusual in that all of the crying out to God seems to get done with in the first verse. For the rest of the psalm, David turns to counsel other people who are responding in the midst of that distress. So he does all of his lamenting in the first verse, and most of the psalm is his counsel to others. But let's take a look at that mini-psalm in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now the uh, leading lights of Hebrew grammar tell us that instead of you have given me relief when I was in distress, past tense, uh, we should actually read this as a request so I'll, let me just retranslate that and also make it a little bit more literal at the same time. In the narrow, broaden it for me. In the narrow, broaden it for me. When the ESV uses the word distress, it's actually often translating this Hebrew word for trouble that literally means the narrow or the narrow place. It's picturing trouble as the walls closing in on the psalmist. Maybe if you have any struggles with claustrophobia, you can understand how powerful that metaphor is. So David is asking God to give him breathing room. We don't actually know precisely what the distress was that occasioned this psalm, but there are some clues. It seems like it was a trial that affected the whole community, not just David, because later on he's going to talk about many people who are saying, who will show us something good. Um, But while that is the case, it does seem like this distress brought some kind of public shame on David in particular. He talks about people turning his honor into shame. And then we can add to that that verse 7 mentions a time when grain and wine abound and seems to talk about it as a different time than the time that the psalmist is in, that David is in right now. And I think taking that all together, a lot of scholars think that the distress may have been a famine. That, that makes a good deal of sense. Uh, remember that in the ancient world, kings were held responsible for everything. So if there's a famine, people are going to start to question, does God really favor the king? 
Um, and so um, David could very well feel a sense of public shame on him personally, even with a famine affecting the whole people. You know, David, in this first verse, he refers to God as the God of my righteousness. Well, we could also translate that the God of my innocence or the God of my vindication. Sometimes righteousness has that sense, especially in the Psalms. Um, the suffering here, it's not a result of David's sin. There are other times when it is. Um, so an end to the famine would mean a vindication of David. Well, that's, that's my guess. But whatever the particular situation, we do see David engaging in his regular practice, which we can learn from most of the Psalms, that in trials, he goes to God in prayer to ask for help. So that's the mini-psalm, but for, I want to spend most of our time this morning looking at the rest of the psalm. What is it that David has to say to other people? And his first piece of advice is our first point, what, what to do with strong negative emotions. In verse 2, David turns to a group of people who he addresses as men. Actually, if you're using the ESV translation, you have a footnote here. Um, uh, for men, it says, or, O men of rank. And that's exactly right. This term can refer specifically to men with social standing, the movers and shakers of society. That seems to be who David is addressing here. Um, and we can see why, maybe, by looking at what he says to them. O oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? So David, rather than being given the honor that's due to him, he's being shamed, as, and it seems, particularly by the powerful in society. He goes on to say, How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? I'll say the trans ESV's vain words is a little bit interpretive. The Hebrew word is just emptiness. And that could refer to untruthful speech. But also, if you know your Old Testament euphemisms, emptiness and lies are common euphemisms for idols or false gods. So it's also possible, especially when you th see that loving and seeking are the sorts of things you do with a god, that these movers and shakers in society are actually tempted to go after false gods. It would seem that the powerful are not only dishonoring David, but departing from the worship of the true God to follow false ones. And if this is a, some kind of national calamity, you can see why that might be a temptation. They wonder, is David able to bring us through this? They might wonder, is God really as powerful as he says, or should I start checking out this whole catalog of other gods that these surrounding nations might suggest I should worship instead? It may not be surprising that, given how fickle people are, especially when it comes to politics, that that's the situation, but it is alarming. It's not the sort of place you want to be as a king. These are the sort of questions that can lead to a coup. So, having rebuked these leading citizens for their disloyalty and impiety, David moves on to give them a bunch of advice in verses 4 through 6. And all of it seems to revolve around what to do with strong negative emotions, the kinds of emotions that can come from being in distress. So he starts by dropping some knowledge on them in verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. God remains faithful to his godly ones. And that means he remains faithful to his king as well. 
God has set them apart. He answers when they call. None of this may be evident in the midst of the situation if you take a very narrow view. It may seem like God has abandoned the people, um, but David has learned from long experience that God does answer when his godly ones call to him. You know, these men may be interpreting their circumstances as God abandoning them or being deaf to David's cry, but their interpretation is wrong. So good theology says that their interpretation is incorrect, and that's where David starts here. But even if you have the right theological answer, that doesn't always mean that it's easy to believe it on an emotional level. And so David goes on to address their emotions as well. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Maybe you didn't expect to come to church today and be exhorted to be angry from the pulpit, but here we go. This isn't the regular Hebrew word for anger, though. It refers precisely to shaking, quaking, or trembling with strong emotion. Sometimes that emotion is fear, sometimes it's anger. I think anger fits best here, given that we have the reference to shaming David. Uh, it feels like an angry thing to do. And certainly the Greek translation has be angry, and the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.26 translates as angry when he quotes this verse, so I've got the Apostle Paul on my side here. But my main point is that the Hebrew word focuses on the very physical side of the emotion of anger. These men are shaking with anger. And isn't it striking that David doesn't tell them not to? David does not condemn the mere fact that they're having a strong emotional response to their distressing situation. In fact, he tells them to go ahead and shake with anger. I think there's a wisdom here for how we relate to our emotions. David doesn't advocate suppression of emotions. In fact, when David says, be angry and do not sin, that implies that it is not necessarily sinful to be angry or to have strong negative emotions. There is a way to do it without sinning. At the same time, though, the fact that this is immediately followed by the words, and do not sin, suggests that anger very often does lead to sin, so that when we are angry, we do need to be on the lookout for the temptation to sin. For example, in the case of the man he's addressing, it seems that their anger has expressed itself in an opposition to David and perhaps also seeking idolatry. So David gives them advice for how to cope with boiling emotions without sinning. First, he says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Anger easily becomes sin when we move too quickly from anger to words. Let me say that again. Anger easily becomes sin when we move too quickly from anger to words. Um, if you feel angry, it's usually wise not to speak right away. Go away, sleep on it, meditate on it. Uh, ponder in your hearts is literally say it in your own hearts. Uh, rehearse what you want to say. Go over it. Check whether it's just and true and fair and edifying. And be silent. 
This summarizes the overall biblical balance of wisdom on the subject of speech, doesn't it? Uh, The wise are often silent. There are many exceptions, of course. There are times when we are morally obliged to speak out. There are times when anger is on the side of justice and silencing it might be a sin. But you know, that's actually not the side that many of us tend to err on, is it? It turns out that if we take David's advice and we meditate on our anger before we speak, we'll often discover that it may be better not to speak at all. Uh, Incidentally, this piece of wisdom gives us some important context for understanding Paul's words in Ephesians 4.26, because there he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Paul is exhorting us to move towards reconciliation quickly, not to sort of stew in our rage. But sometimes that's taken so literally that people deny the wisdom of a cooling-off period. But, you know, in the same passage, Paul also says, don't let any rotten word come out of your mouth, which suggests that it might be wise to take some time to get control of ourselves so that we don't wound others with our words, even as at the same time we seek not to marinate in a grudge for years. It's, it's, this is one of those places where it's good to hold on to the one thing and not let go of the other. David's advice continues in verse 6. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now, offering sacrifices was the main way that someone publicly practiced their devotion to God in ancient Israel. So to adapt this to our context, basically David is telling these folks to go to church. I mean, I know not just going to church might not be the answer to everything. I don't want to be simplistic here. But it can be a good start. You know, the guy who wrote Psalm 73, if you've ever read that one, he was close to giving up on God, but just by walking into the sanctuary, he found his, uh, his view of the world was completely reordered. Meeting with God's people for worship can do that to us. And David isn't just calling for going through the motions of religion here, by the way. He also exhorts them to put their trust in God. There should be that heart element of the same side. In fact, it's possible, it's possible that David's even calling them to confess their sin publicly before God's people, because that was one of the reasons why you would bring a sacrifice to the temple in the Old Testament. When approached in faith, the practice of obedient worship with God's gathered people can do wonders to grow and strengthen our trust in God. And if if building a worshipful relationship with God helps us trust Him more, helps us lean on His promises, then it may also help us not be so quickly buffeted by our emotions the moment the world looks like it's not going the way we thought it was supposed to go. So let's stop for a second, and and let's, let's all do an inventory on ourselves. What are the strong emotions that you struggle with? And I know that some of you are thinking, you know, I'm not just, I'm just not a very emotional person. And as another not very emotional person myself, let me just tell you, just because you don't know you have emotions, it doesn't mean you don't have emotions. So to quote an Akkadian proverb, sometimes there's water under the straw. Sometimes there's more going on under the surface than you're aware of. Um, when you do have a big emotional outburst, As even not very emotional people do, 
Don't just say, well, that's not really me. Maybe you've gotten a chance to see the real you. Wherever you are with your emotions today, I want to think about how David's advice could apply to you. Let's make a list here. Number one, know that the Lord has set apart the godly. Do you have a theology problem? Is there something about God that you are not believing? Number two, be angry but don't sin. Let yourself feel the emotion. Be honest with yourself about it. You know, the psalmists are very honest about their emotions. But be careful what you do with the emotion. Watch out that you aren't led to hurt those around you. Number three, ponder. Spend time thinking and processing your emotions. Number four, be silent. Be cautious about speaking to others directly out of your hurt. And number five, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Work on your relationship with God. Put yourself in places that help reorient you and reorient your emotions to God's reality. Confess your sins to him. Put your trust in him. So that's our first point. Meditation, silence, and the worship of God can help us deal with our extreme negative emotions. Second point. God can give us inner joy. So David's told us a little bit about how to process our negative emotions, but what do we put in their place? Um, what about positive emotions? Well, in answer to that question, David turns to another group of people. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. So this group of people, they're desperately looking around for good things in a bad situation. Kind of sounds that they're having just as hard a time as the men of note or men of rank mentioned earlier. But unlike those men, they have not turned to idols. It seems like the people who are most wealthy and powerful are actually the ones who have gone to idols. Um, but the rest of everybody is struggling too. It seems like they still address God with hope though. They, they ask him to lift up the light of his face upon them. Well, some people read it in a variant way, and as the light of your face has fled from us, O Lord, which is a little bit more bleak, but they are still addressing the Lord, not a false God. Um, it seems these people, they're still holding on to their faith, but they're having a hard time. David, though, expresses a confidence that seems unavailable to them. He says, you have put joy in my heart more than the time when their grain and their wine abounds. That's my translation of this line. David seems to suggest that at a different time, when grain and wine abounded, the many were able to rejoice in God. You know, they had thankfulness for the grain and wine. It came from God, and so they rejoiced in God. But now when the grain and the wine is gone, their joy in the Lord is gone as well. But David still has the joy. Actually, not only does he have joy, the joy that David has in trial is greater than the joy that others have when things are going well. This joy allows David to sleep well, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Rather than staying up all night wondering where his next meal is going to come from, David's able to sleep peacefully because he trusts that God has his safety at heart. 
Is this a joy you have this morning? Is this a joy that you want to have? I mean, maybe you can scarcely imagine it. I mean, imagine this. You're at a July 4th barbecue, surrounded by heaps of carefully smoked ribs and pulled pork and brisket, buckets of savory mac and cheese, watermelon, potato salads, fruit salad, fruit pizza, red velvet cupcakes, and and add to that coolers full of every variety of craft beer. The passage does mention wine abounding. I'm just contextualizing, okay? Now, imagine the sheer joy of all that. But David is talking about something even better than that and something that we can have even when our life is at its worst, even when our bellies are empty and grumbling. This was the joy that Paul had. He says, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. And he calls all Christians to this joy, saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And we could find similar statements in other apostles, even though they all suffer tremendously. I want to make a pastoral note here, even though I'm not officially a pastor for another couple weeks. Some of you probably feel a lot more like the many than like David. I know a lot of times when that's true for me. Though David, and even David, he expresses the joy God has given him here, but that doesn't rule out all the other Psalms where he wrestles with much darker emotions. This isn't a joy that cancels out suffering. It's not a joy that means we will never grieve or a joy that means our trials won't be trials. Many Christians wrestle deeply with trials. There may be seasons when they feel this joy and seasons when they don't. Christians can struggle with depression so much that they can't get out of bed in the morning to come to church. And I hope that we as a church can have compassion for that struggle. Ultimately, our standing before God doesn't depend on the quality of our rejoicing. It depends on Christ's finished work, which is available even to the weakest faith. And also, this isn't something that we can just kind of make happen in our hearts by having enough willpower. David himself, he says, why why does David say that the joy in his heart is there? It's because the Lord has put it there. That's uh, um, uh, verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart. God, God must grant this joy, but it is something that we can pray for and strive to increase. And by God's grace, it is something that Christians can grow in over the years. And and I wouldn't be surprised if those among us who most excel in this grace are some of the oldest here, who've been the longest time in Christ's school. If you have a hard time with this idea of joy, because you feel your life is empty of joy, I don't want to discourage you. Rather, I want to encourage you to press on towards this joy. As incredible as it is, it is a real thing. How would one go about doing that? How do we press on towards this joy? Well, there's a lot we could say, but I, I, I don't want to take all morning. But one thing that's very clear is that it comes from communion with God. See, that's the difference between David and the many. The many, they can only feel the light of God's presence when there's a good meal and some wine to help them do it. 
But David, he can feel that light even in the midst of trials. And that's because it doesn't come from outward circumstances. It comes from his inner heart relationship to God, his assurance of God's protection and love. And that's what we need to pursue if we want this joy, a relationship with God, an intimate, personal relationship with God. Okay, there's a lot more I could say, but why don't I leave the rest as homework? If you discuss the sermon after church, maybe ask the people you talk to, how can we cultivate this kind of joy? But let me move on and close briefly by thinking about how Jesus fulfills this psalm. As the perfect righteous one, Jesus never sinned in his emotions. Think about that. Never did Jesus have any sinful emotions. And you know, that doesn't mean he never got angry. We can be angry and not sin. And Jesus certainly got angry at injustice. We hear of the consuming zeal with which he cleansed the temple of those who were defrauding the poor and dishonoring his father's name. And when we come to Lazarus' tomb, you remember that story, you know, some translations say that Jesus was deeply moved at Lazarus' tomb. But the Greek word really means to be angry. Jesus feels this anger so deeply that the text actually says that he shook. It says that he was angry and that he shook. It is in his weeping and his anger his perfect human emotions, that our Savior exercises his divine power to raise Lazarus from the dead. But although Jesus clearly could feel anger, our Savior's heart was so far away from revenge that even even as he bore all the pain of death on the cross, he still prayed that those who were tormenting him would be forgiven. What could bring one through such great suffering without once turning to sinful anger. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? It was you and I and God's whole people spending eternity in the light of God's presence. That's what your Savior fixed his mind on as he endured the pain of the cross. Friends, there may be many moments where you and I are more like the many in this psalm than like David. Our emotions waver. We're tempted to give up on God in bad times. But our Savior has run this race perfectly, and we are saved by His righteousness. And if we have faith in Him, then this is a reality that the Spirit is working on in our hearts. You know, I love the King James Version translation of Paul's words in Philippians 1.8. Here it is. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of of Jesus Christ. Okay, it's just kind of funny that it has the word bowels. I imagine the connotations of that maybe have changed a little bit. Modern translations usually have something like affections, the affections of Jesus Christ. But you know, the Greek word really is that earthy. Um, Paul is claiming that he has the guts of Christ that he feels his love for the Philippians in this intense physical way in his body, in the way that Jesus did. Because, you see, Paul's whole emotional life was being reshaped to come to resemble Jesus. 
This is the wonderful mystery that the Spirit is bringing into existence in us, a whole new creation of our whole selves in the image of Christ. So let's press on into that and pray for more of it in dependence on the Spirit who gives it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and sit under your word with so many emotions as weak human creatures, some of them holy and some of them not holy. But we pray that you would be reshaping us by your word. We pray that you would make us people who have a love for one another, a joy in you, people who are angry at injustice but who hold back from sinful expressions of that. Lord, we place our trust in you and we pray that you would work the image of Christ more and more in us a little bit more this week and continually more so. We thank you for the fact that it is real and true in Jesus before it is in us and we place all of our faith and our hope in that. In Jesus' name, amen.